Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great thrill to welcome you all this evening to our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On your way inside the building this evening, you may have noticed the train tracks virtually all over the place. They're waiting for our fabulous collection of trains and also toys uh, from our world-renowned journey collection of antique toys and trains. Our newest iteration of Holiday Express will be opening on October 30th, and I hope to see all of you together with your friends and family of all ages on board in just a couple of weeks. Tonight's program, Kissinger, 1923 to 1968, The Idealist, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to this auditorium. I'd also like to thank and recognize some very special people in the audience this evening, the chair of our board of trustees, Pam Schaffler, the chair of our executive committee, Roger Hertog, the vice chair of the board, Richard Reese, and members of our board of trustees, Susan Danilo, the chair of our chair chairman's council, Ira Unschuld, Eric Wallach, Michael Weisberg, and Neil Ferguson, our distinguished speaker this evening. We're proud indeed to have such an illustrious group of men and women on our board of trustees. And I thank all of them from the bottom of my heart for their amazing generosity and hard work on behalf of this splendid institution. Thank you so much to all of you. Tonight's program will last about an hour and it will include a question and answer session. As always, audience members will be invited to line up behind standing microphones to my left and to my right in the aisles. We do this so that everyone in the auditorium can hear your question. Tonight, there will also be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for sale in our museum store. We are absolutely thrilled to welcome back to the New York Historical Society, our esteemed trustee, Neil Ferguson, author of Kissinger, 1923 to 1968, The Idealist. Professor Ferguson has been the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of History at Harvard University for the last 12 years and is now taking up full-time the position of Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. Professor Ferguson is the author of 14 books including the UK bestseller, Virtual History, Alternatives and Counterfactuals, and The World's Banker, The History of the House of Rothschild, for which he received the Wadsworth Prize for Business History. Many of Professor Ferguson's books have been adapted for television, airing on PBS and Channel 4, including The Ascent of Money, A Financial History of the World, which won the International Emmy Award for Best Documentary in 2004. In 2004, sorry, for best documentary, I should say. In 2004, Time Magazine named Professor Ferguson one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Before we begin, I'd like to ask, as always, that you please make sure that anything that makes noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming Neil Ferguson to the stage. Thank you so much, uh, Louise. It's a huge pleasure to be back at the New York Historical Society. This is a very New York book that I've written. And indeed, I think I was working at NYU when I committed myself to writing a biography of Henry Kissinger. That's a lovely ringtone, but not now. And if that is Dr. Kissinger, I'll call him back. I have a very vivid memory of dining with Henry Kissinger when we were discussing the possibility of my writing this book in a famous French restaurant in this city. I was spectacularly late, 
because I had gone by subway. I'm a man of the people. And uh, the subway had just stopped. So I arrived at least 40 minutes late, having sprinted from the subway station in a state of high anxiety. And to my amazement, sitting at the table next to an extremely cross Henry Kissinger was Woody Allen. Do you ever have those moments when you think, I must have eaten something very strange at lunch? Because <laughs> that really looks like Woody Allen there. Imagine my delight when I was researching this book, years later, to be told by Larry David that Woody Allen had made a parody sketch about Henry Kissinger in 1971 uh, for uh, PBS. It was never screened, but it was made. And I tracked it down. And it's, it's, worth, it's worth watching just for the sheer joy of early Woody Allen. Made in 1971, uh, it's entitled the Harvey Wallinger story. And Woody Allen plays a Kissinger parody, Harvey Wallinger. There are many highlights in this short sketch, but my favorite is when Wallinger is on the phone, uh, supposedly in the White House, uh, demanding an injunction, I quote, an injunction against the Times, I won't attempt to do Woody Allen's voice, nor will I do Henry Kissinger's voice tonight, just to be clear. So he demands an injunction against the Times. It's a New York Jewish communist left-wing newspaper, and that's just the sports section. <laughs> the New York theme in the book goes way back goes way back, in fact, to the fall of 1938, when the Kissinger family, Heinz Kissinger, as he then was, his brother Walter and their parents, arrived on the Ile de France from Southampton, docking on the west side, Hell's Kitchen. And this was the moment the refugees reached their safe haven. We read and see much about refugees uh, these days. And these days, the refugees go to Germany. But in the 1930s, the refugees came from Germany. And the Kissingers were among the lucky minority of uh, German Jews who were able to get visas to come to the United States because under the quota system, you needed a relative uh, to vouch for you, and they had one, a distant relative of Kissinger's mother. They settled in Washington Heights, first at 181st Street, and then on Fort Washington Avenue, in a very small apartment where the Kissinger parents spent the rest of their lives. He studied at night at the George Washington High School. During the day, he worked making and delivering shaving brushes uh, out of a factory downtown in West 15th Street. Henry Kissinger became Henry Kissinger, ceased to be Heinz Kissinger in New York City. He was watching the giants play when the news of Pearl Harbor came through. He was in New York City when he was drafted in mid-1942. So New York plays an important part in the book. And I went to great lengths to try 
to get the context right, to try to conjure up what that New York of 1938 was like, and to show how he reacted to it as a teenager, transplanted from the entirely different world of Fürth, a little town uh, next to Nuremberg in Franconia, Bavaria, in southern Germany. New York keeps coming back into the story, too. After his time in the army, after his time at Harvard, he returned to the Council on Foreign Relations. I think he came back to New York partly because Harvard didn't immediately give him a tenured chair, and he absolutely refused to accept a job from Chicago. At the Council on Foreign Relations, he became a public intellectual uh, with a book, Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, that made him a star in 1957. And he kept on coming back to this city when he worked for Nelson Rockefeller. He would regularly be down at the offices of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, from which a great deal of Rockefeller's uh, work was done. Now, this makes you realize the enormous differences between the past and the present. Imagine the 1960s, a time, I know this, I know this seems fantastic, a time when a multimillionaire who hardly ever read any books and had an extraordinarily checkered marital private life could imagine that he might get the nomination to be the Republican candidate for the presidency of the United States. Nothing like that, of course, could happen these days. So as a historian, you have to make an enormous imaginative leap in your work. It was, it was, in, it was in New York City that after much evasion, because he really didn't want to meet him, that Henry Kissinger was introduced in December 1967 to Richard Nixon. And it was in this city, just around a year later, that Nixon offered him the job of national security advisor. A very strange uh, meeting took place at the Pierre Hotel in which Nixon was so oblique uh, in his offer and Kissinger so didn't expect to be offered the job that the meeting had to happen again because Kissinger hadn't understood at all uh, what Nixon was getting at. So New York looms large in this, in this book and it's therefore a really great uh, opportunity to come here to the New York Historical Society and explain a bit about it, a bit about why I took this job on. Somebody said to me recently, I think it's because of the new Star Wars movie, isn't that like writing the biography of Darth Vader? And it, it made me realize that part of the, the reason that I decided to, to write this book was precisely the challenge that I confronted the challenge represented by uh, Henry Kissinger's image in the minds of many people, including many New Yorkers, image as a kind of Dr. Evil uh, of American foreign policy, an image that uh, writers, I think of them as journalists rather than historians like Seymour Hersh and, and Christopher Hitchens, did a great deal to create. Why on earth are you doing this? I've been asked that many times. And now, why on earth did you call volume one the idealist? Well, let me, let me explain how this all came about. The story, in fact, begins not in New York, but in London. Because it was in London that I first met Henry Kissinger. And it was at a cocktail party or a drinks party, as the English say. 
I was an obscure Oxford Don, and here was the elder statesman of American statecraft. And he did something that you, you, should, you should always do if you want to get on the right side of an obscure academic. He said that he'd read one of my books. <laughs> I was immensely pleased by this. And we were talking about the book, uh, a book about the First World War. And just as we were getting into the discussion, he disappeared, vanished, and reappeared seconds later on the other side of the room next to the supermodel Elle McPherson. <laughs> I have never seen anybody move so swiftly across a crowded room. And I thought, I can learn something from this man. In the course of subsequent months, we corresponded, and, and the idea came up of a biography. I know I wasn't the first person that he put this to, uh, and I was very nearly not the last person, because at first I said no. And I said no for two reasons, really. One, it was obviously going to be a massive amount of work. And the second thing that deterred me was the thought of Christopher Hitchens's review of the book. Remember, this is 2003. And it was at that point that I got my introduction to Kissingerian diplomacy. I'm going to quote from a few letters just to give you a flavor of, of the book. I don't think anything can better convey what a work of archivally researched history is like than some quotations from the documents themselves. But this was sent to me. What a pity. I received your letter just as I was hunting for your telephone number to tell you of the discovery of files I thought had been lost. 145 boxes which had been placed in a repository in Connecticut by a groundkeeper who's since died. These contain all my files, writings, letters, sporadic diaries, at least to 1955, together with some 20 boxes of private correspondence from my government service. Be that as it may, our conversations had given me the confidence, after admittedly some hesitation, that you would have done a definitive, if not necessarily positive, Evaluation. I don't know if any of you go in for fishing, but if you do, you'll know what happens when a really well-placed fly lands on the surface of a river and a trout swims to the surface and sinks uh, its teeth into what it thinks is a fly. That was me. I swam towards the fly and really within a matter of weeks was sitting looking through those very boxes. And the moment I started to read through the documents in the boxes, I realized I had to write the book within minutes. Imagine this, finding a letter from 1948 to his parents. I quote, there is not only right or wrong, but many shades in between. The real tragedies in life are not in choices between right and wrong because only the most callous of persons choose what they know to be wrong. Real dilemmas are difficulties of the soul provoking agonies. July 1948. It was the beginning of 10 years of work. In that time, I and my researcher Jason Rocket have gathered material from over 100 archives. The total number of documents is well above 8,000. 8, the number of pages I've turned must be uh, north of 35,000. I can say with absolute certainty that this is the most thoroughly researched book about Henry Kissinger that has been written. But you must be wondering, yes, but if it's an authorized biography, isn't it bound to be a whitewash? Well, no, because although this book was his idea, and although it draws on his private letters and papers, 
I only agreed to write the book on, on condition that I would have a completely free hand as the writer and that he would have no control over what I wrote. In fact, I said exactly the same thing to him that I had said years before to the Rothschild family when I was discussing a book about uh, the Rothschild Bank. I said, I will do this, but my goal will be to write the truth wie es eigentlich gewesen, as it actually was. And you won't like all of that. You have to accept that not all that I find will be comfortable uh, to read. On that basis, the Rothschild book was written, and on that basis, this book was written. There was one important caveat. Uh, Kissinger said to me that he wanted to have some say over personal family-related correspondence and over quotations that I might use from that correspondence. And I thought that was a fair request. And as it turned out, uh, that, was, uh, that was a clause that was invoked, I think, with respect to three sentences in the entire manuscript, all of which related to his first marriage. I went through a divorce while I was writing this book. I don't think it was because of the book, but it certainly made me sensitive to the issue uh, of divorce. Apart from those sentences, uh, the book is uh, as I uh, wrote it. And I think the book is, is a powerful book because it's drawing not only uh, on his papers, his letters and diaries, but also on a mass of other material that allows us to see him from many different vantage points. It's the first half of his life. It takes the story up until the moment that he accepted uh, Nixon's offer to be national security advisor. So it tells you the story, not of the statesman, um, is a very persistent ringtone. It's, a, it's the story not of a statesman that comes later. It, it's the story of a refugee. It's the story of a soldier. One of the most extraordinary documents I came across in all the time I researched the book was a letter that he wrote to his parents in November 1944 from Germany. He was back in Germany as an American soldier six years after leaving as a refugee. Let me quote from that letter. It is very late and I haven't much time, but I must write a letter just so that I can affix to it the legend somewhere in Germany. So I have made it. Out in the darkness that envelops this town, rows and rows of shattered buildings line the roads. People wander through the ruins. War has come to Germany. So I am back where I wanted to be. I think of the cruelty and barbarism those people out there in the ruins showed when they were on top, and then I feel proud and happy to be able to enter here as a free American soldier. Just a few months later, after German resistance had buckled, after the searing experience of the Battle of the Bulge, uh, which brought him uh, perilously close uh, to the German uh, military. If he'd been captured, uh, he would almost certainly have been shot as somebody of German origin in an American uniform. Kissinger found himself outside Hanover and witnessed the liberation of the small concentration camp there at Arlem. Perhaps the most remarkable of all the documents I found in those boxes was a short essay he wrote uh, shortly after that experience. I'm going to quote from that. It's addressed to one of the inmates of the camp. Fulek Sama, 
Your foot has been crushed so that you can't run away. Your face is 40, your body is ageless, yet all your birth certificate reads is 16. And I stand there with my clean clothes and make a speech to you and your comrades. Fulaksama, humanity stands accused in you. I, Joe Smith, human dignity, everybody has failed you. You should be preserved in cement up here on the hillside for future generations to look upon and take stock. Human dignity, objective values have stopped at this barbed wire. What differentiates you and your comrades from animals? Why do we in the 20th century countenance you? Yet, Folek, you are still human. You stand before me and tears run down your cheek. Hysterical sobbing follows. Go ahead and cry, Folek Sama, because your tears testify to your humanity, because they will be absorbed in this cursed soil, dedicating it. As long as conscience exists as a conception in this world, you will personify it. Nothing done for you will ever restore you. You are eternal in this respect. This essay gave the title, The Eternal Jew. Kissinger's discovery not long after the end of the war that all his relatives who had stayed in Germany were dead, at least 13, more if you include more distant relatives, including his grandmother, was of course a searing experience too. And yet Kissinger, unlike his parents, was not so repelled by what he saw that he couldn't wait to get out of Germany. On the contrary, he stayed on longer than he needed to, to his parents' surprise. Stayed on, in fact, uh, until the summer of 1947. First, he worked in counterintelligence, in effect as a Nazi hunter, tracking down the most egregious offenders and rooting them out of the new Germany that was to be created through denazification. And then as an instructor at one of the military colleges set up uh, for that purpose. His explanation for why he stayed on in another letter to his parents sheds light on why I called this volume The Idealist. Let me quote again. You'll never understand it, and I would never explain it except in blood and misery and hope. Sometimes when I look down our table and see the empty spaces of our good and capable men, the men that should be here to nail down what we fought for, I think of the night Hitler's death was announced. That night, Bob Taylor and I agreed that no matter what happened, no matter who weakened, we would stay to do in our little way what we could to make all previous sacrifices meaningful. We would stay just long enough to do that. Kissinger's reputation as the arch-realist, the man who revered Machiavelli and Bismarck, was so firmly established in my mind before I began this book that I thought of calling the first volume American Machiavelli. I very quickly realized how wrong this image was. On the contrary, I came to see Kissinger was an idealist. In the first half of his life, at least, in three respects. The first was born of experience. In an interview in 1957, he said, the appeasers Neville Chamberlain, Baldwin, and the others, those who had pursued the policy of appeasement of the dictators in the 1930s. The appeasers, he said, thought of themselves as tough realists. This was not intended as a compliment. In Kissinger's mind, the appeasers exemplified the danger of playing for time, or as we would now say, 
kicking the can down the road in foreign policy. They exemplified the dangers of ignoring ideology. In a brilliant essay on what he called the problem of conjecture, Kissinger made the argument that in foreign policy, doing difficult things now to preempt future disasters is in many ways a thankless task. Because if you succeed and avert a disaster, no one is grateful. People are not grateful for catastrophes that are averted. And so it's very tempting, especially in a democracy, not to do the difficult thing now and to hope for the best, to play for time, to ignore the ideological menace and insist that everybody is reasonable. This was the realism that Kissinger deplored in the 1930s. As he put it, the men of the 1930s gambled that Hitler was just another German nationalist. They found out they were wrong at the cost of 50 million lives. So part of Kissinger's idealism was born of experience, the experience of the 1930s and 1940s. He was also an idealist academically, and, and this is uh, this is when I have to talk about German philosophy. Forgive me, I'll keep it brief. Imagine the scene. It's uh, the fall of 1947, maybe, maybe it's into 1948, and Kissinger has returned to the United States. He'd applied to all the Ivy League universities uh, on the advice of his mentor in the military, Fritz Kramer, and all but one had rejected him. That one was Harvard. It's rare for Harvard to bend its rules, but on that occasion, it overlooked the fact that his application was late. He arrives at Harvard. He presents himself at the office of Professor William Yandel Elliott, one of the giants of the Department of Government. Elliott was a rather bombastic southerner. Uh, he was an Anglophile. He'd studied at Oxford. Uh, and he'd become interested in idealist philosophy at Oxford. But he was a busy man who fancied himself a, a political advisor, had aspirations to go to Washington. And the sight of another tutee, particularly one with a thick accent, uh, was probably not a particularly uh, enthralling one to him. So he said something that I'm sure other professors in other universities have said to try to get rid of students. He said, come back when you've read the complete works of Immanuel Kant. In 99.9% .9 of cases, this is highly successful, and you never see the student again. But Eliot did not reckon with Henry Kissinger, who proceeded to read the works of Immanuel Kant and just about everybody else he could lay his hands on, and to write the longest senior thesis in the history of Harvard, a, a, a thesis so long that there is a Kissinger rule preventing uh, excessive length in theses uh, to this day. Kissinger gave the thesis the rather narrow, dry academic title, The Meaning of History. It's, it's not his most readable work, but if you read it carefully, you realize what its message is. Its message is that freedom as understood uh, by the Enlightenment philosophers, and particularly uh, as understood by Kant, is a real thing. We are not just corks on a sea of historical forces. We, when we choose, when we make a choice, experience freedom. It's an inner experience, but it's real. And even if there is some historical force, as Kant suggested in a famous essay, leading the world ultimately to perpetual peace, that is not such a teleological uh, force that our freedom is illusory. This is a very important idea for the young Kissinger. But it's, it's important because of its political significance. In the senior thesis, he makes it clear that he sees this idea of freedom as being menaced by totalitarianism. He explicitly links his work on Kant to the experience of the Holocaust. But there's a third sense in which he was an idealist. And that third sense has to do with 
the contemporary fascination with economic theories and economic models. It wasn't only the Soviets who had uh, a materialist conception of history, Marxism, Leninism. There were also a whole bunch of American theorists uh, who had a kind of capitalist equivalent. In the early 1950s, it wasn't exactly hip to write your doctoral dissertation on early 19th century European diplomatic history. That was not the kind of stuff they did at MIT. Kissinger was an outlier intellectually at a time when economics uh, and other social sciences, including political science, were the in things to study. But Kissinger says the Cold War is not just a contest between rival economic systems. It should not be understood that way. Indeed, he says, we should reject totalitarianism, even if it turns out to be economically more efficient than uh, the free market. Because freedom is a more important thing than mere economic efficiency. So the Kissinger who emerges in what I've called this Bildungsroman, this novel of an education, is far more an idealist than a realist. And that becomes especially apparent when the young man turns his mind to foreign policy issues. Kissinger had a brief and not entirely happy introduction to government in the administration of John F. Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy, as, as some of you will recall, hired a huge number of Harvard professors uh, when he formed his administration. This is an extremely dangerous thing to do, and it has not subsequently been done on anything like that scale. <clears throat> and Kissinger was one of them. But he quite quickly fell out uh, with others in the White House, not least George Bundy, who was the national security advisor, who'd been his boss at, at Harvard as dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. On the key issues of the day, the Berlin crisis and then the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kissinger thought that Kennedy was making grubby, realist deals with the Soviets. He, Kissinger, took the high ground on those issues. Kissinger deplored the Kennedy administration's decision not to contest the building of the Berlin Wall. And when he found out, he also deplored the secret deal that had ended the Cuban Missile Crisis, the deal whereby the Soviets withdrew their missiles from Cuba, but the United States withdrew its missiles from Turkey. When Vietnam surfaced as an issue, the issue that was in many ways uh, to dominate uh, so much of his public life, his initial reaction was almost worthy of Woodrow Wilson. This is a self-determination issue. The South Vietnamese don't want to be governed by communists, therefore we should assist them. That was Kissinger's position at the time of the Kennedy administration. But again, he quickly turned on Kennedy after the coup against the uh, Diem government in Saigon, which Kennedy essentially okayed, Kissinger was appalled. It was Kissinger who deplored the American coup in South Vietnam. And it was this story that led me to one of my most exciting discoveries. Kissinger's diary from 1965 of his first visit to Vietnam. Now, some of you probably think that being a historian is a very dull activity. And indeed, much of the time, it is deeply dull. But there are moments in the archives that are just astonishingly exciting. And reading this diary was one of those moments. Because here was uh, young Professor Kissinger suddenly let loose from uh, the tedium of Harvard Yard, flying around uh, South Vietnam in army helicopters, flying over Viet Cong-held uh, territory, uh, going out to special forces outposts near the DMZ, seeing for himself war from the ground up. Bob Zellick, who read an early draft of the book, made a good point that the Kissinger, the man of action, is easily forgotten uh, in other books. But there was this side to Kissinger going right back to his time in the army in World War II that was very important. He was thrilled, but he was also appalled. 
And the diary, remember the date, 1965, is absolutely fascinating because it makes clear that Kissinger understood the war was going disastrously wrong and that the United States would have to extricate itself by diplomatic means. He went back again in 1966. The diaries tell a similar story. And his diagnosis was good. Interagency rivalries combined with corruption in the South Vietnamese government were dooming the enterprise. This left me with a puzzle, and I'll conclude with the whodunit element of the story. Once you've read all this and been convinced, as you will be, uh, that Henry Kissinger was an idealist, at least in the first half of his life, you're left with a puzzle. Why on earth did Richard Nixon hire him in 1968? Kissinger had publicly criticized Nixon on more than one occasion. Kissinger had been loyal to Rockefeller through three ill-fated bids for the GOP nomination. He had avoided meeting Nixon throughout the 1960s, even going to the lengths of making up a trip to Japan to avoid a meeting in 1960 that Nixon had sought. It's a puzzle. All good biographies need to have some element of the mystery. And that is the big mystery uh, that the last part of uh, volume one deals with. There is a facile answer to the question, uh, which is also mildly amusing. Guido Goldman, who was Kissinger's doctoral student at that time, told me in an interview that, and I quote, Henry was the only thing of Nelson Rockefeller's that Richard Nixon could afford. <laughs> but that's not the best uh, explanation, though it is a good line. I'm not going to tell you the answer. Perhaps it'll come up in the discussion. But I will tell you um, how it was that Nixon and Kissinger first met. It was, as I mentioned earlier, in New York City. It was in December 1967. Uh, it was at a cocktail party. It was a very awkward moment. Oddly, though, it was Richard Nixon, hardly the most socially graceful of presidents. It was Nixon who broke the ice. And he did it in a way that will sound familiar to you when I tell you. He said, oh, Professor Kissinger, I've read one of your books. <laughs> With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'll thank you very much indeed. As has been mentioned, there are microphones. If you have a question, please approach the microphone. And I urge you, since time is short, uh, to, to keep your questions brief and, and question-like. Thank you for a wonderful lecture, Professor. You said that when, when Kissinger arrived at the concentration camp, he was proud that he was an American soldier. What was his opinion of Germany when he left in 1947? Fascinating. He, he uh, writes often about this. Uh, his uh, aspiration was clear, uh, that the United States would create a democratic Germany and that that Germany uh, would at some uh, date be reunified, uh, not under Soviet influence. Unlike members of his family, not least his, his father, uh, Kissinger was determined uh, that German society as a whole could be salvaged. And I think this was part of the motivation uh, underlying the denazification campaign, that one could root out and distinguish uh, the worst offenders, uh, leaving the uh, fellow travelers and the, the passive collaborators uh, to be redeemed. And Kissinger was very committed to that. Uh, he was extremely successful, incidentally, as a Nazi hunter. It was what he was awarded uh, his medal for. Uh, and I think he remained uh, convinced that this was a viable enterprise. Saw Adenauer when he emerged as the first chancellor of uh, the independent Federal Republic as uh, an ideal partner for the United States uh, and its other allies 
to work with and only retained a nagging fear that without too much distraction or temptation, Germany might veer off course again. So this is always there, and it informs his response to Ostpolitik when Willy Brandt emerges uh, in the later 1960s. Kissinger was very nervous of Ostpolitik, and he was nervous of anything that seemed to draw Germany away from the West uh, and towards the East. Thank you. Thanks for that question. Well, thank you again. Uh, you've cogently explained why uh, Kissinger is so against the Iranian deal and continues to be so with his recent editorial in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, given the fact that he was so much part of the opening to China, did the Obama administration ever consult him on anything about, the, uh, about an opening to Iran, given, the, given that historical uh, situation? Well, as he has said in, in a recent and excellent op-ed, there, there's almost no comparison between the two situations and those attempts that have been made by the administration to draw parallels with Nixon's visit to China in 1972 are, are really off. I think the question of how far he has been consulted by a presidents since Ford will be a really interesting part of the second volume. <laughs> let, let, me, let me say only this. Uh, it, it is actually in the public domain that he has been uh, to the White House uh, on several occasions in this presidency. But my understanding is that the, uh, the discussions have not really been uh, entirely to his uh, satisfaction. Uh, I won't go any further than that uh, because uh, I don't think I should on the record. But I think he has certainly been, let us say, surprised at how little uh, use has been made uh, of his ongoing and very high-level uh, contacts with other world leaders, most obviously the Chinese President Xi Jinping, with whom he has uh, had this year one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings. I mean, not many. Americans get treated the way Henry Kissinger is treated in China. And it is, I think, to him somewhat surprising that more interest is not shown in the White House. Yes, sir. Uh, um, just in terms, I haven't read your book yet. Uh, is there a larger theme possibly even relating to the treatment of Robert Moses and the power broker or, you know, Richard Nixon's own youthful idealism in terms of people who start out very idealistic, uh, Moses at Yale and Kissinger at Harvard and then meet reality. Um, is, that, is that a theme that you... I hint at that in this volume, as, as you'll see where, when you read it, as you assuredly will. Um, <laughs> I can tell you're a scholarly man. Um, part, of, part of what the book, I think, shows is that once it became clear to Kissinger that Vietnam was a mess and that there would have to be some... Uh, diplomatic exit, uh, it also became clear to him that you would need Bismarckian skill to achieve that. And this is one of the fascinating uh, uh, pieces of research I did. It turned out that there was an unpublished book on Bismarck in Kissinger's archive. It never seen the light of day. He published an article, but the rest of the manuscript was unpublished. And I think that manuscript shows him wrestling with the problem. On the one hand, he deplored Bismarck's total lack of idealism, his complete uh, amorality, his, uh, his uh, rampant pragmatism. On the other hand, he admired Bismarck's strategic skill. And I think the realization that you needed that kind of strategic skill to extricate the US from the mess it was in uh, in Vietnam is the beginning of an engagement with realism broadly defined and the beginning of a shift. I do not know yet what uh, the subtitle of volume two will be. I'm at the stage of having done about 60% of the research and very little of the real thinking, the sort of thinking I do when I turn those pages, reading all the documents tediously in chronological order, reenacting in my mind what happened. But there's a tentative working title that my, my wife actually suggested after a, a talk I gave three weeks ago. Uh, because I'd used the phrase in the talk. She said, you, you should call it the realm of power. Because I think in volume two, we see him enter the realm of power and enter it under the uh, 
the leadership in the form of Richard Nixon of a very different kind of thinker. So that's roughly how I'm seeing it. Uh, but I want to stress it's work in progress. And I don't really make up my mind when I'm writing until I'm writing. Thanks. Yes, sir. Uh, 1948 was the birth of Israel, the 67 war. Uh, how did the experience of Israel and kissing his Jewishness affect his thinking? Thank you. This is a hugely important issue. The first thing you have to understand to answer that question is that Kissinger's background in uh, South Germany was um, that of an orthodox community. And he um, uh, and his family had attended uh, one of the orthodox synagogues in, in Furt, uh, where the rabbi was a very anti-Zionist uh, rabbi. One of the first things that I, I came across of, uh, of Kissinger's writings uh, dating back to his, his teenage years in, in Germany, relates to the question of whether or not the project of a Jewish state is actually blasphemous uh, because of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the notion that it would be a secular state in, in Palestine. So the first thing is, is that he comes from, broadly speaking, an anti-Zionist uh, orthodox background, and that that community reconstituted itself in Washington Heights. Uh, the second thing that's relevant here is that Kissinger has a crisis of religious faith at some point during World War II. Understandable, you might think, in terms of what he witnessed. Uh, his brother had the same experience. Uh, he served in the Pacific Theater. I think it was the war more than the Holocaust. I think it was the experience of army life more than anything that caused this. Uh, but the letters to his parents make clear that this was an agonizing uh, uh, thing for the family. Uh, th that's where that letter I quoted um, uh, comes from, a discussion about religion. You know, you see everything as black and white and I see shades between. It, it was really a, all about this question of, of religion. So I think that's the second thing that you have to know. The third thing is that throughout his early career as a commentator, for whatever reason, Kissinger steered very clear of writing about the Middle East. It crops up occasionally when it's in the news, as in Suez and, uh, and, and later crises, but he hardly ever refers to Israel. And indeed, I began to wonder if he'd had any connection with Israel until I came across some photographs of a trip he had made to Israel, I think in 1967. I say I think because I can find no record, written record of that trip, no diary, none of the letters that I would have expected to find. So there's a curious lacuna in volume one of, of this biography uh, that he really says very little and appears to think very little about the Middle East, something that was to become a huge part of, of his life once he entered government. Thanks. Yes. Hello. Um, so given your experience considering counterfactuals, do you believe that under the current values of a liberal arts education today that are emphasized, would a would-be statesman like Kissinger be able to emerge from their liberal, liberal arts education at a place like Harvard with as much of an idealist sense of the world upon graduation and entering the rest of the world? Can Harvard still produce Kissingers? <laughs> uh, well, Catherine, as, as one of my former students, you're probably quite well equipped to answer that question yourself. <laughs> Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this project is that I realized early on how far he was a historian. A philosopher, certainly, uh, but it's the philosophy of history that's interesting to him as an undergraduate. And then the, un the postgraduate work is, as I mentioned earlier, on the Congress of Vienna, Napoleon's downfall and Metternich and Castlereagh's post-war order. Kissinger has a wonderful line, which I, I urge you all to uh, memorize. He says, history is to states what character is to individuals. And what he means by that is you can't possibly understand the Russian president, just for example, uh, if you don't understand 
and know some Russian history, because you can't understand his historical utility function, if you will. And I think the key point that emerges from, uh, from this account is that the lack of historical knowledge is an ongoing handicap for American decision makers. It's not new, because Kissinger in the 1960s is complaining that there are way too many people in Washington with law degrees who know no history. Uh, and with all due respect to the lawyers uh, in the room, I think the point is a good one that law does not train you to make strategy because you take things on a case-by-case -case basis. And that's the sort of dominant weakness of American foreign policy. Treat each case on its merits. Have no overarching strategy. To have a strategy, Kissinger says, you must be able to think by analogy. You need to be able to say, this is a bit like 1938, but not entirely like 1938. Or this is like 1956, it's not like 1968. And that, I think, is what we lack, not only at Harvard, but at all the American universities. History has become a poor relation within the academy. It is dominated in the minds of my ambitious uh, young students by economics. They opt for economics or they opt for political science. It's seen as a soft subject. And this is fatal to our, our cause. A country that does not properly understand not only its own history, but the world's history, is going to keep making the same mistakes. And one of the things that's most striking when you read Kissinger's diagnosis of Vietnam in the mid-1960s is how familiar it sounds. Right down to little details like, we rotate people out of these places after six months, just when they're beginning to learn a bit about the place. Well, we still do this. So I, I think it's, it's that that I feel more and more convinced of. And if I have a project uh, in mind as I move from Harvard to Stanford, it is to try to make applied history as central to our higher education system as any of the social sciences, and preferably to dominate those social sciences and drive them into second-class citizenship, <laughs> where they belong. Yes, sir. Thank you, Professor. Fascinating lecture. Just on Vietnam, um, from your book, you basically seem to be saying that Kissinger was out of his depth. You say that his Czechoslovak interlocutor had him reeling with his sort of chess game, which was five moves ahead of Kissinger's. And the Vietnamese contact in Paris Beau just had Kissinger stitched up. Um, was he out of his depth? Just, just I mean, he was, just, he was playing at this game sort of for Johnson's administration. He was informally, but uh, it sounds like he was just, he was messing it up. I think one of the uh, best arguments for writing at length as I have. Unfashionable in the age of Twitter to write a 1,000-page a book, and even more unfashionable to say that's only volume one. But the argument for doing it is that you are able to show that someone who later on acquired a reputation for great skill as a diplomat learns through mistakes. And uh, you've, you've mentioned a couple. Uh, those who haven't read the book um, might want to hear just a bit more. Uh, one I've, I think I've already touched on, this extraordinary and abortive attempt to establish some kind of conversation with Hanoi in 1967. I mean, Kissinger didn't just sit on the knowledge that the war was going wrong. He actively tried to start negotiations with the North Vietnamese. And, uh, and it seemed at one point as if he was closer than anybody had got. Uh, and Johnson became quite excited, so did McNamara. It's a real kind of cloak and dagger story of secret meetings in Paris, uh, clandestine trips by French friends of Kissinger to Hanoi. But it all leads absolutely nowhere. And it leads absolutely nowhere because the North Vietnamese had no intention whatsoever of entering into peace negotiations. The whole thing was a feint behind which they were preparing the Tet Offensive. So Kissinger was certainly led down the garden path uh, in his first encounters with the North Vietnamese. Even more fascinating to me was the, um, the episode in Prague, uh, where he has revealed to him by an obscure Czech academic and probably intelligence operative named Antonin Snyderich, 
that the United States would do a deal with Mao's China at the expense of the Soviet Union. Now, if you think of the most important thing that Henry Kissinger did in office, it was surely the opening to China. Few things have more dramatically changed the global order than uh, Nixon's visit uh, to Beijing in 1972. And we look at our world today, and in so many ways, uh, our world today with its enormously powerful and wealthy China starts at that moment in, in 1972. It's long been debated where the idea came from for the United States to open, to seek rapprochement with Mao's China. This book tells you the answer, and it is not at all what you would expect. I always know that I've run out of time <laughs> when you come on the stage, but I think it's appropriate to conclude with that cliffhanger. The opening to China begins in Prague. You heard it here first. Thank you very much indeed. Neil Ferguson, thank you so much. Great talk. Um, we're already in works for another program coming up, so stay tuned. Those of you who are not yet members, time to join if you enjoyed Neil to find out what's coming up. And just a reminder, Neil Ferguson will be signing his book, Kissinger 1923 to 1968, The Idealist. On the Central Park West side of our building, the, the books are available at our museum store. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you all again. Have a great night. <laughs>